Thank you, Don. Um, before we hop into the sermon, a couple things I just want to mention. This past week was a, was a good week. Uh, Sarah mentioned a couple of those things. We had our Ash Wednesday service on, on Wednesday night, and the weather tried to, tried to mess with us, but uh, we, we, we still had it. And uh, maybe some of you know Don Trimmer. Don Trimmer's 92 years old, but you know, Don Trimmer was a postman. And snow does not stop Don Trimmer. So Don, Don was here with us. And uh, so we're, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 of us were able to get, get here through that mess. And uh, we had a really sweet, uh, sweet time, uh, Ash Wednesday. And then Thursday night, um, uh, we gathered for, uh, some of you were online, some of us were in this room, but for the collegiate day of prayer. And uh, it was, uh, that was a, man, that was a, a sweet, sweet time to consider the way that God's uh, has been moving on, on some campuses uh, across our nation and just crying out for God to continue his work of uh, stirring hearts. And then during all that, um, uh, maybe some of you saw the email that we sent out uh, that Scott Berry, uh, one of the Sojourn family, uh, just on his own decided to do a fundraiser for um, uh, Turkey and Syria, the victims there. And um, he, did, he said he was going to drum for six straight hours to raise money for this thing. And he had a goal of $2,000. And by the end of it, uh, we're at 87,775. And so he like beat his goal by four times. And uh, that, that fundraiser is ongoing. So it, it, it's, it's still open until next Thursday. So if you want to participate in that, uh, those funds are going to be used uh, through that organization, Partners um, Relief and Development, and it's got, those, those funds will be sent directly to the, the victims in Turkey and Syria. And it's just, we, we just saw that Scott was doing that and just wanted to celebrate uh, somebody trying to, trying to make a difference and trying to, to make a dent uh, in, the, in that severe situation. Uh, I believe the victims uh, are over, it's, it's 40, 46,000 people that have died uh, from that now. Um, and so if you want to participate in that, that's still open until Thursday, uh, March 2nd. Um, and then another thing that we want to mention to you is uh, this, this word. We, if you were at the members meeting, uh, we shared this at the members meeting about a month ago, um, a few weeks ago, that, that, uh, that we are going to be going to, to two services. And last week, the Sojourn Kids Ministry had a, uh, had a meeting and shared with their volunteers that we were going to two services. Um, and so... Um, as, as we've been talking about going to two services, there has been uh, a, a surprising amount of discussion about start times for these services. So, um, I know, I know. So, um, we are inviting you to give us feedback. Now, I cannot tell you for sure that the majority wins on this, but I am interested, and we are interested in, in what, what your thoughts are on start times. And there's not a whole lot of variety, but there are some strategic reasons why one might make sense more than the other. And so the options are 8.30, 10.30, and 9 and 11 would be the two options. But on that survey, you're also invited to, sell, to, to, to share with us which of those would you come to. So let's say you like 9 and 11. Okay, you like 9 and 11, then which of those services would you come to. And so it just kind of given us a little bit of a sense of uh, when we go to two services, how, how best to uh, plan for those services. And then, you know, obviously you're not locked into your answer, but over the course of uh, these next few weeks as we get ready, uh, we are going to two services on Easter Sunday, and we intend to, to stay with two services after that. Um, we are, uh, we're excited about what God's doing here, and uh, there's uh, good, good, uh, good momentum and good energy, and we're super thankful for God's work among us. Uh, but we do invite your, uh, your feedback. So if you need that QR code, it's uh, up there for like three more seconds. So, um, but we, we, we invite your feedback. 
Uh, Okay, so we're in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're just, uh, every week, just the next part. So this is Matthew uh, part 7, and uh, I want to look at this passage. Um, Last week, we had all of chapter 3 read, chapter 3, 1 through 17. Uh, Today, we just had verses 13 through 17 read, and we are going to focus our attention on Jesus' baptism and how Jesus' baptism keeps adding to the surprise of who Jesus really is. And so we're going to be talking about Jesus' baptism. And I just want to mention, uh, right, you know, right behind me is a tub that we call our baptistry. And uh, it's typically where we, where we do our baptisms. And uh, Sarah just mentioned there's a baptism class coming up on March 19th. And then there's uh, uh, baptisms uh, we're going to have on, on April 16th. But we can fill that thing uh, any Sunday. And we, we've often said we want it, we want it to stay wet. And so uh, if God's stirring in your heart and, and you, you've not been baptized, uh, we would love to talk to you about that. Uh, either come to the class on March 19th, uh, sign up for the baptism on April 16th, or any time before or after. We would love to talk to you about it uh, as we see it uh, as a, a step we would just love for, for you to take. And so today we're going to look at, at Jesus uh, entering the water uh, with, with, with John the Baptist and what is going on. Now, I want to also admit at the beginning um, that while this is only five verses, there are literally 1,000 rabbit trails that could be taken. And I, am a, I preach from notes, and so I, do not, I don't plan to take all of those rabbit trails, and I'm going to do my best not to. Um, but if I could just tell you that those five verses, these five verses, have so, so much for us to think about and for us to consider about what God is doing uh, in, in, in this little uh, sequence of events. And boy, does he have so much uh, for us to consider. So I'm going to do my best to, to, to bring uh, a few things to the table. Uh, but this passage and this text is worth your time. It's worth you chewing on it and you journaling on it and you spending time asking God what he might want, uh, want you to see. So Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Last week we saw that Matthew introduced John the Baptist to us. And he introduced Jesus to us, and I suggested last week that he did it in a very intentional way, that that Matthew's approach seems to be telling us that we will not see Jesus as clearly unless we see John the Baptist first. And so Matthew kind of, like, he he works to give us a contrast between John the Baptist and and, and Jesus. He wants us us to feel that, Uh, almost like John the Baptist has the the heavy stuff and, like, more the law, uh, and Jesus is more like the gospel. Uh, John is more like the Old Testament, and Jesus is more like the New Testament. Matthew also wants us to wrestle with all the wrong expectations regarding Jesus, And so for the first three chapters, in subtle ways and then sometimes in very direct ways, Matthew is making the reader confront what the average Jewish person thought was going to be the story of the Messiah. And so there's just a bunch of things in these first three chapters where Matthew's basically saying, I know you thought it was going to be this way, but it's it's different than what you thought. And there were a number of examples in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of that being the case. And as we come to chapter 3, Matthew continues wanting us to wrestle with it. You know, the Jewish people were expecting a royal king. They were not expecting a poor baby born in a manger. Uh, The Jews were expecting a conquering king who would overthrow Rome, put them back on top. They were not expecting uh, a carpenter from Nazareth who had nowhere to lay his head. Uh, And even John the Baptist, as we saw last week, uh, the one who knew Jesus the best, 
I mean, John, John, John knew Jesus. He's looking for a righteous judge. He is, he is uh, you know, he has a, in, in his comments here in the beginning of chapter three, he says, you think my message is serious? Wait till the guy that's behind me. I'm, I'm a forerunner. Wait till the Messiah shows up. He's showing up with an ax in his hand. He's showing up with a winnowing fork. He's coming as a judge. You think, you think, you know, I got a lot of heat. He's going to blow me out of the water. He, he's coming hard and hot. Just watch out. He's right behind me. So John thought Jesus was coming with fire. Thought Jesus was going to, to crush them. It's that he's going to lay an axe to the root of the tree. And then we saw that Jesus shows up, but he doesn't show up like John the Baptist expected him to. Jesus just shows up in the crowd, among the people, waiting in line to get baptized. He's in the crowd. He's relating to the sinners. He's identifying with the sinners, not as a sinner, but with the sinners. And John looks at Jesus and says, this isn't right. You know, John, John's baptism was a baptism of alignment. John's baptism was a baptism where people said, the king is on his way. We, we have not lived right. We, we need to repent. And John said, get, if you agree with that message, get in the water. And these people were getting in the water. And it says in verse 6 that they were confessing their sins. And so when Jesus shows up and Jesus says, I, I need to get, I'm, I'm here to get baptized. John the Baptist is like, no, no, this isn't right. You need to baptize me, not me baptizing you. And so, so John is dealing with the confusion of who this Jesus is and how he shows up uh, in this moment in time. And Jesus is, looks at John and says, no, no, it is right. I, I, want you, I want you to do it. And Jesus begins to show us that the plan is crazier than, than we would have thought it was. So John does baptize Jesus. We see this in verse 16. And then we get some incredible stuff in verses 16 and 17. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to is that the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. If you'll notice there in, in verse 16, it says, And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And so the spirit of God, like a dove, shows up, descends and lands on Jesus. It's a harmless dove. Do you remember all the stuff John was talking about? All the winnowing fork and the axe and the, the message of fire and judgment. And then it's a, it's, it's, it's a harmless dove. Several commentators point to the fact that, that uh, the dove has a number of different symbols or it symbolically represents various things. But one of those symbols is the symbol of, of gentleness. And later in Jesus' ministry, in, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus refers to doves be, be, with this sense of, of gentleness and so as, this, this, as the Spirit, like a dove, lands on Jesus, Dale Bruner says this dove is bringing all of that imagery. It's an imagery of gentleness. It's an imagery of, of what Dale Bruner calls harnessed power. That's what gentleness is. It's harnessed power that is committed to bringing peace. And so as the dove descends and lands on Jesus, it's all of this imagery wrapped up in, this, in this, this moment, in this image, where Jesus is being portrayed as the one who's going to have a gentleness, but it's, it's, it's harnessed power with the goal of, of bringing peace. It can kind of seem like the opposite of fire, doesn't it? Gentleness, peace, 
And yet John says he's coming with judgment and with an axe. Is John wrong? Well, no. The answer is that both of these symbols are right. The fire and the dove. Judgment and peace. And so let's hold on to, to both of these images. But what Matthew definitely wants us to taste here is that the work of Jesus is going to have a gentleness to it. There's going to be, in a sense, a beauty to it. And we're going to come back to that in in just a minute. And don't miss this. Don't miss this. Matthew uses the word, I don't know if you saw it there in verse 16, but he uses the word behold. And he uses the word behold twice in these couple verses. And that word behold is a Greek word that means look. And it's a command. And so Matthew, as he writes this down, he comes to verse 16 and he says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, don't miss this. Don't miss this dove coming down. Don't miss the spirit like a dove descending on Jesus. This is something that we want to grab hold of and recognize that the ministry of Jesus, uh, it's something's being said about the ministry of Jesus here. There's a gentleness to it. There's also a sense in which this dove spirit functions like a finger pointing to Jesus. In other words, Jesus' baptism starts with a visual. The spirit doesn't say anything. The spirit just descends like a dove, and it's a picture. It's a picture of the ministry of Jesus. It's It's a picture of his gentleness, and it's a picture of him being anointed for his public ministry. That the Spirit is, is pointing to Jesus. And, and the, the idea here is that Jesus is being equipped. He's being anointed for the nature of the ministry that God has set for him on earth. He's being anointed with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a visual thing. The Spirit is pointing at the Son and saying, this is him. This is him. There's been all this confusion about what would the Messiah look like? What, what's he going to be like? All these expectations that the Jewish people had and the spirit like, like a dove is like a finger pointing right at Jesus and saying, this is him. And then anointing him to do the ministry laid out before him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we find out that we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That this idea of of Jesus showing up and Jesus being here in person, that there's a way in which Jesus is revealing to us the glory of God. That this is the long-awaited Messiah. That this this is the one. And the Spirit is pointing him out. Well, then we hear the, the Father speak. So first the Spirit descends on the Son, and now the Father speaks to the Son. This is a very Trinitarian passage. We've got the the Spirit coming to the Son in the form of a dove, and then we've got the Father speaking to the Son from heaven while the Son stands in the water. And so if you know anything about the the historic doctrines of Christianity, the Trinity is like at the center. The Trinity is an incredibly significant uh, doctrine uh, for for the followers of, of the God of heaven. And there is a ton we could say. And so I'm not going to say anything. This sermon isn't about the Trinity. But this passage sure is a Trinitarian passage. And it sure seems like the Trinity is interested in baptism. Because the Trinity is most, we see it quite clearly here in Matthew chapter 3. The next time we see the Trinity this clearly is in Matthew 28. When the church is commissioned and sent into the world. And we are told to baptize them in the name of the Father 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it sure seems like when Matthew thinks about baptism, he thinks about the Trinitarian nature of what is going on uh, in, in, in the life of a, uh, of a person. And we see it here. This, the dove spirit descends on the Son, and now the Father speaks to the Son. You know, in the Gospels, what are called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we only have two recorded times that God the Father speaks directly to the world from heaven. And both times, he says the same thing. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And you might know this and you might not, but that's, that phrase is actually two quotes from the Old Testament. One half of it is from Psalm 2. And one half of it is from Isaiah 42, verse 1. And so it's like God is like quoting himself. God is quoting the Old Testament and associating who this person is that's just come up out of the water in this river in the middle of nowhere. And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You know, Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a, a, a translation of the Bible called The Message. And the way that he translates this is, This is my son, chosen and marked by my love, delight of my life. Delight of my life. Why, why, why does Eugene Peterson choose those, that, that language? Well, he, here's why. If you were to look at the phrase, you know, my beloved son, that the nature of that is you know, that uh, Eugene Peterson says, chosen and marked by my love, beloved. He is God's, he is the Father's loved son. Je Jesus is absolutely priceless. That, that, that's what the Father is declaring. He is my beloved son. He is chosen and marked by my love. He, he, he's, he's the best thing there is. Incredible. And then he goes on to say, with whom I am well pleased. This word that's translated well pleased has a deep sense of delight. That, that not only is this son loved, not only is he priceless, but the father finds incredible delight in him. And so Eugene Peterson says, delight of my life. He, he, he's my delight. Like, th th this is who Jesus is. This is who the Son is. And it couldn't be, it couldn't be stated more dramatically. Th th this is intended to be um, a, a signifier. This is intended to be language that puts Jesus on a, on, a, on a level that can't be matched. It's this sense where Jesus is the beloved Son of the, of, of the Father in heaven. He is the one with whom the Father is well-pleased. These are incredible statements of love and care that the Father, and he's announcing this about, about the Son. And again, Matthew doesn't want us to miss it. Look at verse 17. He says, and behold, look. Think of it like almost like putting an exclamation mark beside behold. Like, behold, look, don't miss this. Don't miss the Spirit coming down and anointing Jesus and pointing to him and saying, this is him, and his ministry is going to be beautiful and gentle. He says, look again. Don't miss this. That was the picture. Now listen to the audio. Listen to what's said. Listen to what's spoken over Jesus. The Father is so delighted in Jesus. 
He is so delighted. Such, such intense love, such intense approval, and Matthew doesn't want us to miss it. I don't know what's going through your heart right now, but don't you long for this kind of affirmation? Don't you long for that kind of acceptance? I mean, to have anyone say something like this about you is incredible. We just went, you know, past Valentine's Day, you know, and it used to be the, you know, kids were you know, handing out all these little Valentines. We, uh, we hardly do, I mean, adults don't do Valentines. No, nobody's telling you that you're the love of their life or, well, maybe your spouse is, but like you're, you're not hearing this kind of language and some of those Valentines, they're over the top, man. It's, we, we, we long for acceptance. We long for approval. To have anyone say it would be incredible. But to have the God of heaven, to have the heavenly father say it, man. Was it even possible that God might be delighted in me like that? Is it possible that God could say those kinds of things about, about me? Well, I'll speak for myself, but you know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of a mess. You know, when, when I look in the rearview mirror and not just way, way back, but just like in, in real time, like I, I, I am aware of the things that bubble up and out of my own heart. I, I am aware of the distortions of, of, my, of, my, of my affections in the world, of the things that I actually want to do and the things that I don't want to do. I am aware that I have a lot of mixed motivations and mixed um, desires. And I'm guessing that's true of you too. And when we consider the fact that this God, this, 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 as we're thinking of him here as the Father, and we think of how holy and great he is, you know, there's multiple situations in the Old Testament where this is put in front of us. But one of them is in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah ends up before the throne of God and he falls apart. And he says, I don't belong in here. I am a man of unclean lips. Do you know what Isaiah's career was? Talking. It was his lips. It was what he said. Isaiah was a prophet, a prophet of the Lord. Somebody who had the audacity to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. But when he ends up in the throne room of God, he says, I don't belong here. These lips are unworthy of this space. These lips are dirty. This heart is dirty. I'm falling apart in front of the holiness and the grandness of the God of heaven. This is way above my pay grade. I don't belong here. I'm too dirty to be in God's presence. And there's other occasions in the Old Testament where we get various pictures that give us the same idea. The holiness of God is incredible. It's beyond words. It's beyond comprehension. And so when we think about you know, do we belong in, in relationship with somebody like that? Man, the right response is Isaiah's response. Woe is me. I don't belong in this room. I mean, I want God to smile at me. I want God to approve of me. But that seems pretty unlikely. He'd have to have a really, really bad memory. You know, you, you feel me on that? Is it possible that God could smile on me like that? Well, you know, hold, hold on to your seats. You know, for, for centuries, if you put yourself back in this moment in Matthew chapter 3, about 2,000 years ago, for centuries, the Israelites, the people of God, had been so frustrated. They had been frustrated with themselves, 
and they had been frustrated with God. There was all of this incredible work of God among the people of Israel to call them out as his own, to call them out of slavery multiple times, to provide for them his law and his word, to give them guidance through a, a pillar, of, a, a pillar like, that was like a cloud during the day and a pillar that was like fire at night. God gave them all of this assistance, all of this direction. He gave them prophets and priests and kings. God gave them gift after gift after gift. And they just, they just kept blowing it. And they, they knew they had blown it. And so they were clearly frustrated with themselves. But if you read through the Old Testament, read through the Psalms, read through the prophets, there was also, there, there was an honesty. There, there was a frustration with God. There was often these, these, these calls out and this, this longing for God to come and rescue them from themselves. They, they knew they were a mess. I mean, by, by the time you get to the later prophets, it was so clear. The desperation was so extreme. They knew they needed God's mercy. Part of the message of the Old Testament is that you could get all the resources in the world and it's not enough. You, you could have God's word. It's not enough. You could have prophets and priests and kings. It's not enough. But by the end of the Old Testament, we should be demoralized. And Israel was demoralized. They couldn't do it. All these times, they stand up and they say things like, we will now follow the Lord. And that lasts like three minutes. They can never do it. And the desperation and the frustration is growing. They are getting clearer and clearer on the reality that they cannot rescue themselves. And so they cried out to God to do something in spite of their failures. Now look, the majority of the Israelite nation, man, they continued in their rebellion. But some, some of the poets, some of the prophets cried out to God for help. And they would say things like, woe is us. You know, we, we have rejected you, God. Would you have mercy on us? They, they would cry out, Lord, look upon us. Where, where's your concern for us? We need your help. We know we don't deserve it. But like, it's clear. We fail the test every time it's put in front of us. We, we can't do it. God, would you, would you help us? Now again, a large percentage of the nation of Israel was not saying that. But there were these voices throughout crying out to God like that. Here's one. Listen to Isaiah 63. At the, end, at the end of Isaiah 63, in the beginning of Isaiah 64, this is Isaiah the prophet crying out to God. And in earlier verses, he makes it clear that he's crying out to God. So, Lord, look down from heaven. Where are your zeal and your might? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Now, where are we in Matthew chapter 3? What just happened? Are you kidding me? Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, one of the beholds that Matthew writes, you've heard me say it multiple times in this sermon. He says, Jesus comes up out of the water and behold, the heavens were opened. In Mark's gospel, he actually uses the word torn, just like Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would tear the heavens, that you would rend the heavens and come down here. 
We can't, we can't do it. Would you come help us? Do, do you see that in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew is bringing to bear the reality that the longings and the hope of the people of God, that there might be a rescue, that in spite of all of their failures, in the face of the recognition that they could never save themselves, that maybe God would tear open the heavens and come down. And here we have in Matthew 3.16, Jesus is the answer to that prayer. That the heavens have been torn and Jesus has descended. The spirit has descended. The father is speaking. And this is a direct answer to the most desperate need the world has ever known. God, is it possible we can't get to you? No matter how hard we try, we cannot get to you. Would it be possible that you would tear open the heavens and come to us? Might that be? And Matthew says, you bet. God did indeed tear the roof off the world and he climbed in. And he didn't climb in just to judge, but to take the judgment and to bring the peace. And that's why John's imagery uh, at the beginning of this chapter, where he sees Jesus as coming with fire and judgment, John's not wrong. It's just the beauty here is that Jesus takes that fire and that judgment for us. He takes it upon himself. And then the Spirit's imagery of the dove and the peace recognize this, this gentleness to Jesus to where in a few chapters, Matthew chapter 11, we're going to hear Jesus say things like, come to me, all you who are worn out, and I'll give you peace. I'll give you the rest that your soul is longing for. You see, that, that, that's the imagery of the dove. It's the gentleness and the peace that Jesus wants to bring. But how in the world can he bring peace? Well, the Bible's telling us that only by him taking all the judgment upon himself. You see, Jesus' mission will require him to be both the one who judges and the one who takes the judgment upon himself so that sinners could actually be restored, so that peace could be won. Jesus came here to rescue us from the sin that had an infinite price. And that price was the death of Jesus on our behalf, in our place, as our substitute. Jesus came and he got his hands dirty with sin, suffering, and hurt that have filled the earth. And he provides a rescue from all of it. Jesus paid it all, but it's not just a rescue. As incredible as as it is to consider the fact that Jesus came to rescue us, it's not just a rescue. Look what else Jesus wins. He offers the smile of the Father. Perfect love poured out on us. This is the good news of the gospel. In Jesus, we find the only rescue that can bring us back to the Father. But when that happens, we're not just brought in as like, you know, junior partners. We're not just brought in where God shakes his head and taps his foot and kind of is a little annoyed with the fact that we're in there, you know, who are these people? They're filling up my place. You know, what, what, what's the deal with all these guys? Like, I know who they are. They rebelled against me. No, no, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that Jesus' rescue for us not only rescues us from death, but it wins for us the very smile of the Father that Jesus has. In other words, everything that's said about Jesus, if you've run to him, is now said about you. 
That when God the Father looks at Jesus and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, if you've run to Christ, now he looks at you and says, this is my son in whom I'm I'm well pleased. It means that God actually delights in you. That if you've run to Jesus, then everything about Jesus that's true of Jesus is, is true of you. Do you know how loved you are? Do you understand what Jesus has won for you? Now look, you may not have had a good earthly father. Man, father relationships can be so super complicated. But in Christ, you have your ultimate father. The the heavenly father, a good, good father who loves you and gives you good gifts. You know, in just a couple chapters, we're going to run into Jesus' most famous sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people refer to it that way. And in Matthew chapter 7, this is what Jesus says. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give you good things, give good things to those who ask him? Jesus just went through this baptism experience, experienced the smile of the father, and then he says to everybody out there, look, if you as as sinful earthly fathers have this sense of like caring for your kids, don't you think it's going to be multiplied by infinity when the father in heaven cares for you, and he gives you good gifts? What father gives his son a stone when he asks for bread? And Jesus says, now multiply that by infinity. That's what your father in heaven is doing for you. That's what he's offering you. And his greatest gift that he gives is is the son. It's Jesus himself. And when you put this all together, if you've run to Christ, then everything that the father says about Jesus, he now says about you, He loves you, and he sings over you, and he smiles upon you. Do you see what that means for you? It means that your standing with the Father actually has nothing to do with you. That he loves you just because he loves you. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with Christ. That that Jesus has won for you a position that, you, that it's not fragile. It's a gift. It's by grace. And it's poured out so lavishly. This means that on your best day, when you wake up and you get up at the exact time that you said you were going to get up, you don't hit the snooze button, and you open your Bible and you spend some time with God right off the bat, get that day started just the way you wanted, and you walk out into your kitchen and you're a delightful person to your spouse and everybody who lives in your house is just glad to see you and you're glad to see them and you're kind and you offer wise counsel and then you're just delighted on your drive to, church, drive to, to work and you're a, a, a faithful worker all day long and your employer is glowing about how good you, uh, your, your work is and you drive home and you come home and you circle around the dinner table and you, you pray and ask God for, or you grant God um, Uh, Thanksgiving for that meal, and you end the night just together as a family, and you look in the rearview mirror, you get, you know, brush your teeth, you get in bed, put your head on the pillow, and you're like, man, man, did I kill it today. 
this is, this is what it's about right here. In, in that moment, you are reminded that it was never your resume. It, you, you were not loved at any point in time because of your resume, even on, on your best day. But then what about the inverse? What about, what about your worst day? What about when you don't have a good night's sleep and you wake up and everything's terrible and you're rushing out the door and you're treating everyone around you terribly and you're mad on your drive-in and you're a grumpy person at your office all day long and you come home and you don't want to be around anybody and you haven't thought about the things of God, you haven't opened your Bible one time, you've been dishonest more times than you can count. When you put your head on the pillow that night, you know what you're invited to be reminded of? That it was never your resume in the first place. That the love of the Father poured out on you was not related to your performance. It was related to the performance of Christ on your behalf. And that what Jesus wins for you, if you have run to him, the Bible loves this language that now you are in Christ. Sometimes the Bible uses language like clothed in his righteousness or covered by Christ. That imagery is all coming right back here to Matthew chapter 3. This recognition that if you are in Christ, now the Father sees you and he sees you in Christ. And it's not your performance, it's Jesus' performance on your behalf. And his love for you pours out all over you. In the book of Hebrews, we are told, you know what, yes, there's discipline, Yes, the Father disciplines you, but why? Because he's head over heels about you. Because he loves you to the ends of the earth and back. Because that's what a good father does. Is out of love, he corrects his kids. But your standing with him was never based on what you did. And it gives us an incredible groundedness. It removes the fragility of our faith. It lets us stare our sin in the face. And we can actually be honest about what's going on. We don't have to try to put on a show every day. You know, it's still true sometimes, but for so much of my life, I wasted a ton of energy trying to perform for God. I wasted so much energy trying to perform for God, I had no energy to love my neighbor. I was too busy trying to manage my relationship with God, trying to see if he was okay with me. Jesus is telling us right here, the Father is declaring over him his love. And if you're in Christ, that kind of love is poured out on you. Have you run to Christ? If so, then you are in the family. You are a beloved son or daughter of the Father. And he is smiling at you. And it's the only smile that's ever mattered. And if just as we close, if, if you think, man, you know, they keeps using this language of, of son. And why, why, why is it son? You know, the rest of the New Testament seems to use son. Our liturgy used the word son. Like, is that just gender clueless? Are women cut out? Like, what, what's the deal with the, the, the fascination with son? Is that just a, you know, a holdover from previous times? L- listen, let, let me tell you something incredible. In, in biblical times, females had no inheritance. They did not receive an inheritance. Only males received an inheritance. And so when the New Testament actually has the audacity of saying, as we read in our liturgy, that you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. 
If you were a woman and you read those verses in the first century and you saw that idea, you, you grasped that concept and you were like, wait a minute, I could be a son? What, what, what's actually being said is you can have an inheritance. You, you can be an heir too. That this work of Jesus isn't just for the firstborn. It's not just for males. It's actually for all who would come. Everybody gets in on this inheritance. So in our culture, it's completely fine to say you are a son or a daughter, daughter because in our culture, that's not, it's not true anymore. But in the first century, could you imagine being a, a female who had no inheritance and then finding out that if you've run to Christ, that the same inheritance is available to you? Absolutely incredible. And that's what Jesus wants us to realize. It's what the Father wants to declare. It's the comfort that is offered to our hearts. And it is, it is all offered by, by faith. It's all offered by faith. But just like the Old Testament, you got to realize you can't do it yourself. You know, there's, there's an illustration that we've used multiple times over the years. And we use it because it's just, it's just so good. But one of C.S. Lewis's books uh, in, in, the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And there's a character uh, in, in that book named Eustace. And, and Eustace kind of ends up throughout the, you can read the story on your own, but he, he kind of gets sideways throughout that story. And uh, he, he begins to allow uh, a, a, a greed to kind of take over his life. And as he go, lets his greed go unchecked, C.S. Lewis, in his typical creative way, has Eustace turn into a monster. He actually turns into a dragon. And the indication is that he turns into a dragon because of his unchecked greed. As the story unfolds, um, you know, we find out that, that Aslan, the lion, um, eventually interacts with Eustace, who's turned into this dragon. And he takes him to a clear pool of water. And he tells him to undress and jump in because Eustace has finally come to the end of his rope. And Eustace realizes that life is a dragon, life is a monster, life this distorted is not good. And so he comes to the end of his rope. He ends up in, in relationship with Aslan. Aslan takes him to a clear pool of water and says, undress and jump in. And Eustace realizes that what Aslan means is he wants Eustace to take off the dragon skin. So Eustace goes into the water, and Eustace starts to scratch off his skin. And as he does, he looks down and realizes that there's another dragon skin, another layer of dragon skin beneath that layer. And he scratches that off, and another dragon skin is beneath that. And then Eustace finally realizes that he can't do it. And C.S. Lewis writes this, then the lion, Aslan, said, I don't know if he spoke it, but he said it. You will have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tears he made were so deep that I had thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. 
And that's C.S. Lewis in his beautiful, creative way of saying that Eustace came to the end of his rope, but Eustace couldn't save Eustace. Eustace's soul, his heart had been so distorted that as much as he wanted it gone, he couldn't do it himself. Aslan had to do it. This is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is you might be here today and you might be like, yeah, I have no idea how God of heaven, how the God of heaven could ever smile at me. I don't know how the God of heaven could ever look at me in my situation and say, you are a beloved son. You're a beloved daughter. I can't imagine it. I tried everything. I've tried it all. Well, listen, you know what the answer is? You have to let Jesus do that. You have to run to Jesus and you have to trust Jesus to rescue you. You have to, you have to trust Jesus to take your heart from dead to alive. You have to, let, you have to let Jesus deal with the problem that separates you from God, which is the problem of sin. And boy, his arms are wide open. It's an offer of a lifetime and it's an offer on the table for you right now. He'll wash you. He'll, he'll scrape all that stuff off and he'll bring you to the Father. Jesus is actually the only one who can. And just like Matthew says, don't miss it. Behold, see him. Don't let him pass by. As we come to the table, my invitation to you is to actually wrestle with that very consideration. Have I run to Jesus to actually have him deal with the problem that I can't fix myself? Have I run to Jesus in recognition that as desperate as I might feel, as much as I've tried, there's only one who can actually wash me clean. Jesus offers that. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, we thank you for this bread and we thank you for this cup. We thank you for the person and work of Jesus on our behalf. We thank you that Jesus uh, ripped the roof off the earth and climbed in. And in doing so, got his hands dirty with all the sin and suffering, all the pain and brokenness. And he took it upon himself so that we could actually be rescued and made whole. So that we could experience the peace that we so desperately need. And God, then to find your smile. To find your love poured out on us like that. Beyond our ability to actually comprehend. But the most important thing we'll ever receive. We thank you for your generosity towards us and your son Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.